Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. Morning, everybody. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet. A light on my path today. We're going to talk about God's Word, the Bible, and uh, why it can uh, be a lamp and how it can be a light for our path uh, today. Uh, before we get going with that, I want to uh, just say a word of thanks. Friday night, uh, we hosted the City Union Mission staff, their board of directors, and families for their annual um, uh, meeting of appreciation and vision casting and uh, just uh, putting together a whole appreciation dinner for them and everything, and uh, then they install their board members at that, and I got to speak at it. The events dream team did an amazing job of putting that whole thing together and uh, feeding them and decorating, setting up, tearing down the whole bit, and so uh, just a big thank you uh, to that team who put that on, and thank you for your giving, which allows us to uh, support and uh, an organization, pour into an organization like the City Union Mission who's doing great work in our city, in our inner city, uh, for the homeless and uh, for the poor. Uh, so thank you so much for that. Uh, next week, we're going to start a new series called The King, uh, referring to King Solomon, the rise and fall of King Solomon. And it's really going to be a great character study I'm getting excited about of someone that we can learn a lot from in Scripture um, but uh, if you're a small group, maybe your small group's starting, you don't have a curriculum chosen, uh, you might consider uh, doing the Talk It Over notes. It's going to be a four-week series. You can join us uh, studying King Solomon if you want, or maybe you just want to do that in your family or as personal study as well, but we're looking forward to that. Before we get going with that and starting a new small group semester, uh, many people studying the Bible together, uh, I just want to remind us of why we can trust this book, the Bible. You know, the Bible calls believers a peculiar people, which is really great if you live in peculiar Missouri, but it's referring to, to things that make us unique. One of the things that make us peculiar is that we study the same book over and over and over again. Some people for their whole life studying the same book uh, because it's alive and active and we grow closer to it, we grow closer to God. So let's just start with uh, some must-know facts about the book. Maybe you're brand new to your Bible. If not, if you, if you love your Bible, we've been in it for a long time, you're going to love this too, but just some must-know facts. The word Bible means book. In the Greek word, it's biblos, and that's how we get the word Bible, but it's not little b book, it's capital B book, because it's a book like no other. It's the most read, most translated, most sold, most shoplifted, and most talked about book in history. Uh, there's 66 books actually make up the Bible, so this is deceiving because... This is like, I mean, there's small, tiny print, and it's printed on tissue paper. If you were to print the, the books, like you'd actually print a book, uh, it would take up a shelf, a shelf and a half of uh, so much in there, because it's actually 66 books written over 1,600 years in three languages, on three continents, and there's 40 writers, but there's one, write this down, one author and message can I get a better amen somebody? There's one author and message. And if you step back and just look at this from a literary point of view, that's really quite remarkable. Because group authorship is a very dicey endeavor. If you look at the bestseller lists of books, rarely do you ever see 
a group authorship. It's normally an individual who wrote it. And uh, so the Bible's author is God. It's inspired. Only God could have done it. Man held the pen, but God wrote it. Let's read uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 together. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And these 66 books with two major divisions, the Old Testament and the New Testament, these books that make up the Bible, they're not in chronological order. They're grouped together actually by what kind of book they are. So here's how the Old Testament is, is put together. It has the law, which is five books, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And this has creation and the flood, and Abraham, Moses, the Ten Commandments, the law. Then there's the historical section, which is, this is Israel's history after Moses. Then it goes all the way to the end of the, the Old Testament timeline to when the Jews return from exile and uh, Nehemiah rebuilds the wall and the temple gets rebuilt. Then there's the poetical section, five books, Job through Song of Solomon. And then the prophetical books, which all these prophets lived in the historical section, but their books of prophecy are categorized out into the prophetical section. Five major prophets, 12 minor prophets. All this means is that the, the major, it's bigger books, and then the minor prophets are smaller prophecy, smaller books. And the Old Testament was put together by the Jews long before Jesus' time. They had very strict criteria. And when it comes to the Old Testament, we have the endorsement of all endorsements that they got it right in Jesus Christ, who Jesus affirmed every section of the Old Testament. He affirmed and endorsed the creation story and Noah and the flood, Abraham, Moses, the law, the historical accuracy, uh, the Psalms, Job, Solomon, and the prophets. And that's how the Old Testament's organizers, uh, about 400 years where no Bible books were written then. Now, you might come from a Catholic background or another background with a Bible that includes the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha are writings that happened between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. They were not considered to be scripture, but they were added on as an appendix. But in the 1500s, during the Protestant Reformation, the Catholics decided to include the Apocrypha in the scriptures. The problem being that no apocryphal book was written by a prophet. Uh, none of the books were included in the Hebrew scriptures or uh, uh, confirmed, uh, cited as authoritative by later biblical writers. There's no fulfilled prophecy in any apocryphal book. And finally, Jesus, who quoted from every section of the Old Testament, never quoted once from the Apocrypha, and neither did any of his disciples. So then, let's look at the New Testament. The New Testament kicks off with the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, sharing uh, four different accounts of Jesus' life, death, resurrection. And then you have the book of Acts, which is the historical record of the early church. It's the, it's the Acts of the Apostles, of them starting the church and how churches were planted. Then letters were written to these churches and individuals. They were called the Epistles. There's 21 books. Some of your outlines say 20 books. That's my error. It's 21 books. And then they show us how to be the church, how to live and spread the gospel while we wait for Jesus' return. And then the book of Revelation, the prophecy of the last days and eternity. And uh, when it comes to this, many people have this image in their mind 
Like, well, how did we get these books? And people have this image in their mind that some guys got into a room and held a vote on which books they like and which books they didn't like. And that's how the New Testament was formed. And different things have given us that impression. Things like the Da Vinci Code. And the, the Da Vinci Code is a problem because it's fiction. It was written to be fiction. The publisher published it as a fiction book. And then people took it like it was real. When it wasn't based on any historical accounts or anything like that, it was a made-up fiction story that people have taken like it's some kind of real thing. When actually, historically, what you have is you have these lists of what should be included in the New Testament going back, I mean, thousands, hundreds of years, and you compare them, what the early church had, and they had, these people had nothing to do with each other, but yet their lists line up that these are the New Testament books. The early church had a New Testament that they all agreed on. It wasn't only until some other books a few hundred years later tried to weasel their way in that church council said, look, these are the books that we've agreed on for hundreds of years now. And they formalized, those church councils formalized what was already known. It, they made official what, it would be like if someone today came out with a declaration of independence and they said, this is actually the declaration, the correct declaration of independence, not what's on file and on display in Washington, D.C. Of course, you'd have all these historical records that the real one is the right one. And so, but if it picked up steam, you would formally say, no, that's not it. This is the right one. And that's what they were doing is they were making official what was already known. Now, the New Testament uh, books, there's some criteria. They had to be written by an apostle or someone affirmed by an apostle. That's huge because Jesus had chosen the apostles and the church understood that the disciples and later the apostle Paul were the ones to give us the faith. Another criteria is that it had to be accepted by the early church. In the early church, those first Christ followers were able to affirm these letters, these books, and they were able to say, yes, we actually saw Jesus there when he said that. Or, or Paul, he said those things to our church. It lines up, and they confirmed and accepted these writings. And a third criteria is it needed to be in agreement with the rest of the books. So you wouldn't have another New Testament book that's saying something totally different than the other books. Maybe you say, well, I don't know if I can trust the Bible. I want to give you some reasons today why you can trust the Bible. Let's write these down. We'll go pretty quickly through this. But number one is the Bible is historically accurate. It is. Many will say that it's all made up, but history proves the Bible. The Bible is not just full of great principles. It, they are his, it's historical documents. And it lines up historically. Now, if you want to know if anything is historically accurate, it needs to pass some tests. If you're taking notes, one of them is eyewitness accounts. Other religions, false religions, this is how they started. They started with one person having a private dream or thought about God. And then they, from that private idea, they shared it with others. And over time, it picked up steam and was accepted by more and more people over a long period of time. Christianity is the invert of that. Okay? The story didn't build momentum over time. Jesus 
lived a public life. He had a public ministry. He died in front of people. He rose from the dead. People saw him. People saw him ascend into heaven. There were witnesses by many people. And those witnesses shared it, and it spread like wildfire very early. So these aren't hearsay stories that someone heard and wrote down, and then it picked up steam to where we are today. No, almost all of Scripture were written by people who were actually there, or written by people who went and investigated and interviewed the people who were there. So the Gospels, for instance, were written by people who lived and walked with Jesus, or in the, in the case of the Gospel of Luke, he went and investigated and interviewed Jesus' followers. And they saw, they saw and heard these things for themselves. That's why the Gospels align the way they do. They say the same thing. Now, no, they do not say word for word the same thing. If the Gospels said word for word the same thing, that would indicate that they were not true. Because anytime you take four witnesses into a room and they tell you their side of the story and they tell you word for word the same thing, what would you know? If your four kids tell you the same story word for word, something's up. They've corroborated their story. There's some other motive. But what you see in the Gospels is that the guys didn't have to to sit down and go, what are you going to put after Jesus feeds the 5,000? No, they told their story, and for, there's different perspectives and different things that are highlighted, or, but it's the, same, it's the same story. You see good witness. You see reliable witness. And they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to corroborate a story because they were there. Moses didn't hear about the parting of the Red Sea. He was there. He witnessed it. Another test for historical accuracy is that the documents need to be recorded and copied with extreme care. The Jewish scribes had a standard that no one else ever has had to record history. They didn't even copy the manuscripts word for word. They copy them letter for letter, and they had systems to make sure it was copied correctly. I could do half a sermon on all their protocols and everything. They weren't afraid to throw out a whole document if there was one little error. You count to a middle letter, and it's not the same, and they would, it was extreme care. But maybe you say, and this is what I want to do today is kind of push back on some objections to the Bible being the word of God. And and this is one of them. Maybe you say, okay, well, God wrote the words. And let's say we even have the right books, but it's been copied and translated so many times. How do we even know we have what the original authors wrote? And so what people picture is this giant, almost 2,000 year game of telephone that it's just been translated so many times that how could this possibly be? What actually happens is when a committee goes to make a Bible translation, like the New International Version, the New Living Translation, the ESV, what, whatever, they're not, tra- they're not putting that into English after it's gone from Greek to Latin to German to then your language, they're going back to ancient manuscripts, the original language, and then translating it into the language you speak and read. It's translated one time, only one time. So no, in terms of translation, there's, one tr- there's been translated only one time. Now in terms of copies, yes, it has been copied. No one is claiming that we have the original manuscript that the author wrote. You know, we don't have Paul's piece of papyri that was touched by Paul's hand that he wrote on and then 
bound with a cord and sent with a messenger to the church of Ephesus. No one's claiming we have that. It wouldn't hold up over this long a period of time. So how do we know the copies we have accurately reflect what the original author wrote? Well, there's a science to this. So just because you don't know doesn't mean no one knows. Okay, this is an academic field called textual criticism. And these scientists study and compare the ancient manuscripts that have been copied from the original. And they study and compare. And you might say, well, people could make errors. Yes, they can. But 24,000 people don't make the same error, which is how many ancient manuscripts we have of the New Testament. And when you study ancient literature and ancient, when you do the science of textual criticism, the New Testament is in the majority lane of, manuscript, of ancient manuscripts, not the minority lane. I mean, there's other documents where people would say what, that there's only 10 manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, but people will say, well, that's of course what Caesar wrote when he wrote that down. And over here, you have thousands and thousands and thousands. Why did, God has given us overwhelming evidence that the message in your Bible is the same message that Paul was proclaiming, that the gospel writer was proclaiming in the New Testament. The third historical test that something has to pass is archaeological confirmation. So you can't call something a historical document if there's no other actual physical archaeological evidence to back it up. And we have sites, events, people, places, names where we have dug in the Bible lands to know this is a historical place. King David's palace. Luke will talk about a governor. We have his name. Talk about Pilate. We have an inscription with his name on it. Now, I'll tell you, there are some things in Scripture of a historical nature that have not been verified archaeologically. But there are more and more discoveries made that don't disprove the veracity of scripture archaeologically but actually bear it out for instance they're still excavating where the bible events happen and a big one in the er early in the last century so about a hundred years ago there was a big movement of people who said look the bible talks about a hittite empire and the vastness of this empire with all the archaeological digging we've done we would have found that by now and they said the Bible writers just made it up. But then, in the early 1900s, they dug around in Turkey and found 10,000 tablets and a 1,200-year civilization. What they found was the Hittite capital and all their records. It was said that the Bible can't be true because when you look at the sophistication with which Moses writes the Pentateuch, that no one was writing with that sophistication at that time. And they said it can't be true because there's, this, this was dated wrong. It couldn't be. Then they discovered the code of Hammurabi, which was written 300 years before Moses' writings, and it's one of the most sophisticated level of writings that people did not believe existed. And now there's archaeological evidence that it does. You have Solomon's reign. We're going to talk about Solomon and the accounts of his wealth. And uh, he you know, says he's got these stables of a thousand horses and the best Arabian horses. And skeptics said... We've been digging for a lot of years. You'd think somebody would have found that. And then a number of years ago in Megiddo, they found 1,000 plus stalls where all these horses were kept. 
And I don't have time to go through many of the archaeological discoveries because there are over 25,000 specific places in the Old Testament alone that are verified archaeologically. Another reason why the Bible can be trusted is because it's not only historically accurate, it's scientifically accurate. Now, the Bible is not a science book, but why is it that when new science is discovered or they print a new science book, they don't have to reprint the Bible? Because it's scientifically accurate. It holds up. In the oldest book in the Bible, it says that God hangs the world over nothing. We didn't discover that until thousands of years after that was written. There's so many things in here that are scientifically accurate. The Bible has an answer for origin. The Bible has an answer for how the first cell began, how it existence began. When Hubble discovered that the universe had a creation date, had a beginning, that of course lined up with scripture because Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And what we see is that creation is ordered, it's designed. What we've learned about our world and living organisms and ourselves at the DNA level is incredible. The complexity of living organisms, it doesn't just happen. It just doesn't randomly come together. There's an intelligent designer. He did that within us. He also designed a place for us to live in the universe to sustain life. Another reason why I trust the Bible, and this one is amazing, is prophetically accurate. So the Bible is predicated on a setup and a payoff. And if man wrote the Bible... What a risky thing for them to fill it with things that are foretold and then have to come true. And then, by the way, let's put in there that if a prophet says something and it doesn't happen the way they said it would happen, throw out the prophet and the whole thing altogether. But there are over 1,000 specific prophecies in Scripture. They're not generic prophecies. They're not palm reader prophecies like, this month you're going to meet someone who's going to impact your life. Well, duh. That's a team with red on its uniform is going to win the Super Bowl. Yeah, well, duh. These are not generic prophecies like that. They're specific. Over 300 specific prophecies for Jesus alone. Now, all the prophecies that are foretold in the Bible that need to have come true by this date have come true. There are prophecies that are foretold that have not happened yet. They will happen. Second Peter 1.21 says, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God. How amazing. The claim is that this is speaking the very words and the mind of God. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And when you look at the prophecies that have been fulfilled, things that it was said that this would happen to a city, it happened to that city. It said that this would happen to Jesus, it happened to Jesus, exactly all the things. At the end of the day, it takes a lot of faith to believe that those would be coincidence. And no other religions have this, by the way, the prophetic accuracy. Number four, the Bible is thematically unified. You have this 1,600-year span, and somehow it hangs together as one book, the first and the last page, even using the same image to serve as bookends. And a, a great question people ask is, well, couldn't the people who wrote the later stuff read the early stuff and make it fit? And in some cases, no, because they didn't have access to it. 
But even if they did have access, some of the stuff that was written uh, doesn't even make sense until you bring in the other parts of Scripture. So if it were only one person who wrote it, that would make, I mean, that would make sense. The Koran's written by one person. Uh, the writings of Buddha is written by one person. As you look around at the sacred texts from other religions, most of them are written by one person. Some have the contributing factors of a few different people. But as you read the Bible, you get the symmetry of one powerful story, how Jesus is creating and restoring all things from people who never met and are dealing with different issues under the influence of God. In Luke 24, it says that Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning him. It's about God. It's about Christ Jesus. Number five, I love this one, and that is that the Bible has survived all attacks. It's supernatural. It's a miracle. There have been people and armies and governments who have tried to eliminate the Bible, burn Bibles, persecute people, threaten people for having a Bible, kill, burn Bible translators. You can go study the attacks on the Bible. It's a supernatural work that's here. I could preach against the Bible, go against the Bible. At the end of the day, I'll be gone. The Bible will still stand. Then Job, it says that we, we are like grass. We're like a mist. We live for a moment, then we die. And then I love this in First in Peter. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord, read it with me, endures forever. It does. And it's still changing lives. No one's been able to stop it. It will change your life in Jesus' name. In fact, that's number six, is it has transforming power. There is no cause that has done more good for the human race as a whole I'm talking in tangible ways than God's church following God's word. And there's a lot of misinformation on this point. Some people are getting away with making the absurd claim that the church, Jesus followers, the church, has done more harm than good. That is a laughable statement. It is historically ignorant. Because where Jesus is exalted and the church flourishes, there is inerrant value of human life and caring for the handicapped and the sick and the dying where Jesus is exalted and the church flourishes there are hospitals slavery and racism are intolerable women and children are defended and cared for where the church is there is justice there are legal systems and if you have someone that's really pushing that on you or maybe that you're not sure where you stand on that a great book to read about this be a book by Jeremiah Johnston. It's called Unimaginable, What the World Would Be Like Without the Church. Jeremiah Johnston, Unimaginable. And it's a fascinating read because it's like a sliding doors kind of thing. So it goes through and it shows what the, this part of the world, what this nation, what this time would look like without the church because here's what God did. Here's what the church did. It has transforming power. Hebrews 4.12. Let's read this out loud together. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And if you go all in with the Bible, it will transform your life for the good. Many people think the principles in this book are going to ruin your life. They're going to steal your life. They're going to steal your fun. 
The Bible will set you free. The truth will set you free. And the truth of Scripture has the power to break chains that your family has suffered with from generations. Habits and addictions that you've tried to break on your own for years. The truth will set you free. And number seven, seventh reason I trust the Bible is the, the Bible's trusted by Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus believed the Old Testament to be the very words of God, and he actually predicted the New Testament to be likewise. Uh, but, but some will say, okay, well, the Bible contains the word of God, but it's not all the word of God. And they'll say, we believe in the words of Jesus, everything else we're not sure about. They'll say things like, well, the Apostle Paul, he was writing to a cultural backdrop of his day. His words aren't for us. That stuff doesn't apply. They'll say, I'm only in on what Jesus addresses and what the red letters say. But Jesus handpicked Matthew and Peter and John. Jesus handpicked the Apostle Paul. He inspired them to write the New Testament. Jesus believes it all. It's a God inspired it all. The whole thing is the word of God. The whole thing is Jesus addressing something. The whole canon, not just the red letters. But what I have found, however, is that those who, who don't trust the Bible, it's rarely because of one of these seven reasons. What actually happens is we say, well, I read the Bible but there are things in the Bible that contradict my basic values, my core values and beliefs. So I can't possibly believe it's the word of God because it says things uh, that I don't agree with or that I find flat out offensive. And so the logic of this objection is it upsets me so I can't possibly believe it. It upsets me so it can't possibly be true. And, and we know that's downstream logic but people will say, well, it's not just me, uh, it, it's my friends, and it's not just them, it's my professors and my family and my coworkers. They find things offensive in the Bible. And so what you're saying is it doesn't only contradict your personal values, it contradicts your cultural values, the values held dear to your culture, people around you. But if the Bible really is a supernatural book, and it's really not the product of any one culture, then it would contradict every culture on some point. Every cult different cultures, different points. So the Bible, the fact that the Bible contradicts your personal feelings or maybe some of your cultural values, that doesn't cut against it being the word of God. If anything, it proves even more so that it is indeed the word of God. Because the kind of God that we want is one that never says anything we disagree with. But if you have a God that agrees with you on everything, never argues with you, always does what you want him to do, and he fits perfectly into the image of what you want a God to be, you know one thing for sure, you don't have the real God. You have a product of your imagination. You've made a God in your own image, in your own imagination. And the only way to get the real God, the God who is sometimes hard to understand, the God who calls you out on the carpet, and a God who's, like, who says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? The only way you get a God like that is if you take the Bible as it is and you don't edit it. 
Don't manipulate the Bible to accommodate your feelings, your nature, your culture. It's the only way you can get that God. Because if you don't believe the parts of the Bible you don't like, how can you really believe the parts you do like? Because the Bible says all these wonderful things. That God is a God of grace. That he can save the worst sinner. That he loves you. And people say to me, Pastor, I'd like to believe that God is gracious. And Pastor, I'd like to believe that I can be forgiven for what I've done. And Pastor, I'd like to believe that I'm a child of God, that God lives within me. I'd like to believe that God is love, and I know the Bible says those things, but I struggle to believe them. Why do you struggle to believe that? Because you don't believe the Bible. You have to take the whole thing. All of a sudden, it's on solid footing, because if you're over here editing and saying, well, I like this part, I don't like this part, and this part's for me, but this part isn't for me, and this part's for uh, my nation this time in 2020, but this part isn't, then at the end of the day, what you're doing is looking over your shoulder and you're saying, I chose these. I, I created this. I made this God. And that's the other option, is to edit stuff out, cut stuff out, slash the text, do violence not only to the text, but to God himself. Just like we did with Jesus. We did the same thing with Jesus. As he came, he started saying all these wonderful things. People followed him. We followed him by the thousands. Then he started saying some things that were a hard teaching. And he started saying some things that were hard to understand. And we fell away and ended up killing him. And we do the same thing with God today. Of look at all these wonderful things. Look at this amazing grace. But I don't, this is hard to understand. This is a hard teaching. I don't know about this. And we end up killing the real God and inventing a God of our own imagination. I'll tell you one thing. If you do that, initially at least, the God you make up for yourself, you have everything in common with him. It's wonderful for a little bit. You almost never disagree. He does exactly what you tell him to do. But what you miss when you do that is you miss warmth and love and relationship. You miss awe and wonder, falling on your face in worship, saying, God, who am I that you would be mindful of me? And you miss salvation. Because the only way you can get those things, the only way you can get salvation is if you take God as he is. Because that's what he does with you. He takes you as you are. At least that's what the Bible says. Let's pray. God, you know how we want to play judge and you know how we want to be the ones who decide what's true and what's not true and what's right and what's not wrong, what is wrong. You see how strong this desire is in us. At the same time, we want to be connected to you and connected to our creator. God, I just ask 
that this day that you would, you would loosen our grip on what's in the heart of every person in this room, and that is determining our own right and wrong, determining our own values, determining our own God. I pray that you would pry that grip apart and open us up to you, that you come and speak to us and show us who you really are. Not edited, but who you really are. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook Church. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.